So if you were here last week, you heard that we have started a new series, and um, that series is on our values, and we want to cover um, just the three values that our, our church holds really dear and kind of gives us um, the culture of who we want to be, um, really gives us direction about where we're headed and what, what matters to us most. And so if you haven't already, you should notice that there's some new paintings out in the hallway, which are illustrations of... Um, of our values that we have. And so uh, today we're going to talk specifically around honor. If, if you could, one thing that would be really helpful for me is if you could turn your cell phones off. Um, that would be wonderful. Thank you. God, we ask um, this morning that uh, we would celebrate well, um, celebrate um, leaders, celebrate people being baptized, and God, just um, the presence of your Holy Spirit, would we celebrate that? And God, I pray that uh, the value of honor that we hold so dear in our community, um, would that shine through um, not only this Sunday when we speak about it, but in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come. Uh, we ask these, name, these in Jesus' name, amen. Believe me, this is not me bragging by any means, okay? I'm going to start off with a sermon by just giving a caveat. Um, I went to a very small high school, and for whatever reason, our high school was good at basketball for the, like, the division that we were in. And uh, I played. It wasn't my best sport, but I, I was good enough to uh, play and, and make the team. And as a sophomore, um, I, I got brought up to play on the varsity team um, as the very worst person on the team. Okay, so there were 10 people, and I was the 10th. Like, there was no question about it. I played uh, significantly less than everybody else. So it was very clear. I sat last on the bench. You know, it was very clear. And, and looking back at it now, I kind of wish maybe they would just have left me down at the lower level. I could have played more and all those things. But the team was really good, and I was very excited to be part of it. And uh, we got so far that we actually made it to the state semifinals, where we played at Michigan State's arena, the Breslin Center. And uh, after winning our quarterfinal game, which was a really big deal, uh, lots of people were there. It was a really big uh, win, probably one of the, the top two or three biggest wins in our school's history. Uh, we were headed to um, the semifinals, and it was this really amazing thing. And after the game, I remember all of our fans, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fans coming down, all the students coming down and, you know, giving hugs and giving high fives and being so excited uh, and congratulating our team. Well, what was funny is, you know, the, the best players on the team, they all had people surrounding them, right? Hugging them, way to go, great game. And I had like my parents, you know, which doesn't really count, right? And maybe like a friend or two that would just come up and give me a fist bump. But everybody knew, like, I didn't play. I played for 30 seconds at the very end. And uh, yeah, I didn't do anything besides cheer. I was basically a fan on the bench, right? That's, that was my role. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, like, people don't understand. I went through every practice, just like everybody else. I ran every sprint. I did everything I could to help this team be better, but I don't feel valued in the midst of this. You know, maybe a very selfish thing to think, but it is kind of like a real thing, right? As a 16-year-old as a or 15 or however old I was at the time. And I remember feeling like, man, I just, I did not feel like I was valued. I did not feel like people saw me. I did not feel like I had um, 
Yeah, the same honor that everyone else was getting for being part of the team. And so honor is something that everybody longs for, right? I mean, I think that you can get honor in ways that are negative, right? You could be part of a gang, right? You get a lot of honor by doing bad things sometimes in those cases. Or, uh, I mean, even worse, like a terrorist group, right? You could be, receive honor for doing something because you're part of the community. But there are other ways, like you could be more honorable, like you could be a soldier, right? You receive honor for being in the military. You receive honor for uh, being a teacher a lot of times. Maybe you don't feel that all the time, but I think that there is, that's an honorable profession, right? People respond to that. And there's other places in our society where you can find that honor. And we believe that that is at the very heart of God is that honor uh, that, that every single person, regardless of background, regardless of history, regardless of gender, regardless of race, whatever's going on, they are inherently valuable. And so our, uh, our value of honor says this, we affirm that every single person has immeasurable value because they are made in the image of God. Yet we live in a world where so many have their inherent dignity questioned and marred, often as a result of systemic injustices. In response, we will be a community of hope and action, seeking friendship and unity as we become reconcilers and advocates until all people in Chicago flourish. And really this value comes from the very beginning of the story of the scriptures. If you start on the first page, you'll come across the value that we kind of draw from in what we said in this text. And I think what is a biblical framework for why people have inherent value and worth. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we can see from this narrative, it's very obvious if you read the whole text and not just these two verses, that God's creation was good. It was very good. And in chapters one and two, we see that it's not just a static thing, right? That it wasn't just like, uh, like there, there was just creation and things just happened, right? There seems to be from this text, a plan, some sort of project that's going on that God wants to happen in his good creation. Like there is something that humans were created to do. Though this is very mysterious, uh, Genesis, I believe, is telling us that we have, in some ways, a vocation in the world to make this world a lovely place, a place where heaven and earth come together. You will be the people that leads creation to celebrate the creator. And so humans are created in this divine image. Humanity is not, according to the scriptures, an accident. Humans, according to this passage, seem to have a unique place within the design of the creation. And so many people have tried to determine and understand, or theorize, what it means to be made in the image of God. What, is it, what does that mean? Like, what is it in us that makes us made in God's image? Or what defines that? Maybe it's the human mind. Maybe it's our imagination. Maybe it's our will or memory. 
something has to be there that makes us a little bit like God, to be said that we're made in the image of God. And some of those things may actually be true. But today I'm not going to argue which one I think that it is. Or which ones I think that it is. Because I don't actually think that that's the point of this passage. I think it's more important to understand how the ancient Near East thought about the world and religion in particular. In the ancient Near East where uh, the Israelites would have existed, we we get a, a kind of a clearer picture. And what happens in every one of these societies is that they have a temple for their God. Everyone starts essentially with this temple and every single temple has an image. It has an image, and and this image is where the presence of God would reside, where the presence of God would, uh, his power and majesty and awesomeness would be on display and kind of like within that idol and on display through that image. But for Israel, it was slightly different. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, N.T. Wright uh, puts forth, God makes a heaven and earth as temple. And God puts uh, into this temple an image of himself, which is humanity. And so creation, all of creation, is able to appropriately worship God through the image that we see through his humanity that he's created. And that's what the image of God is supposed to be in the world. So that the power and the love and the stewardship and the sovereignty of God can be exercised in the world through humanity, through his image bearers. So in other words, human beings being made in the image of God are like an angled mirror which the worship of creation is reflected up to God and the stewardship and love and purposes of God are reflected out into the world. So let me try to make this like sense of this because this is a really cool illustration. So I don't know how many of you have driven up a ramp like out of a grocery store, maybe Target's a good example here in Uptown. And as you're heading up the ramp and you're about ready to enter out into the world, you have blinders, right? You cannot see what's to the right or to the left. But what they do is they put a a mirror up, don't they? They put a mirror up so that you can see if some innocent bystander is going to walk right in your line and you don't crush them. And in the same way, the person that's walking down the street can look at that mirror and can see if you're going, if they're going to walk into oncoming traffic, right? They're going to see if a car is going to hit them. And so this image is that this angled mirror reflects back and forth to one another. And humans are to be like this mirror. God created us to be essentially this mirror so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans so that the rest of the world can worship the creator and understand who, what God is like. To see God's people, Exodus 19, Revelation, and parts of Paul as this royal priesthood summing up the praises of creation, presenting them before God in worship. So we, when we praise God, we're doing so as representatives of the whole world. And so when we are looking after creation and bringing God's restorative justice to creation in all the different ways we're reflecting God into the world. So priests and kings reflecting God to the world and the world back in the praises of the world back to God. So you see how we're like this mirror. We're reflecting the praises back to God and we're reflecting who God is to the rest of all of creation. That's what the image of God is supposed to be like. So it's unsurprising that we get passages 
that express how we are meant to reflect that image, how we respect to reflect who God is into the world. And this is really the task of all Christians. This is the task of people that who, where, where sin has entered the world and, and marred God's good creation and, and ruptured what was meant to be. Now it's Christians' job to reflect what God is like, who God is as his image bearers on earth. And so Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, I think give us this really cool and amazing picture that, uh, of, of, of what God calls Christians to do in the world. And you'll see a phrase around honor in that passage as well as other things. But I want to read this because I think it's just amazingly beautiful what Paul writes. This is how we're supposed to meant to live in the world. He says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice, ha- practice hospitality. Listen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, if that's not a clear presentation of how Christians are supposed to live in the world, I mean, it can't get any clearer than that, right? It's like we're saved by, by grace through faith. We surrender to Christ our lives, and now we are a reflection of God in the world. And this is a high calling. I mean, these, this is an, a difficult task. And everything in our lives pulls us, to, a lot of ways, away from these things. I think that we're often told, if someone harms you, get revenge, right? If someone uh, says something untruthful or harms someone else, get rid of them. Curse people that harm you. Don't overcome evil with evil, or don't overcome evil with good, but do it with evil, right? Get people back. And I think that Jesus really messes with our perspective of who deserves honor (laughs) and who doesn't. I think that most of us, when we think of honor, it's like the people that think exactly like us, the people that act like us, the people that are kind of part of our tribe and our people, people that agree with us, right? And everybody else should essentially be disregarded, crushed, But I want you to think about who Jesus surrounded himself with. Let's go through the people. It's astounding. I just put a brief list together. Um, Simon is, one of his disciples is called the zealot. A zealot is a revolutionary. This means somebody that is going to try to lead a revolution or join a revolution against Rome. 
Matthew, on the other hand, is one of his disciples that's a tax collector, someone that has sold out and joined Rome so that he could become rich. He's a traitor. So can you imagine Simon and Matthew hanging out together? Like, <laughs> one wants to go attack Rome, one's like, yeah, like I kind of committed, you know? I don't know. I'm a traitor, basically. And those guys should hate each other. Jesus had them both as like in his inner circle of 12. He writes in fishermen, just regular people. I don't know, a little rough around the edges, I like to think of the fishermen. I mean, I like to fish. But these guys were like, like manly men, I guess. You know, whatever, whatever that is. Mary was a prostitute. She was part of the 72, most likely. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a religious leader. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. Racially impure. The woman caught in adultery was a cheater. The men with leprosy were unclean. The centurion Roman soldier was someone who occupied the region and oppressed the people of God. So I would just say, humbly, Jesus surrounded himself with abusers, warriors, cheaters, thieves, oppressors, day laborers, religious leaders, the rich, the poor, conservatives and liberals, Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans, to just name a few. And he honored them. He welcomed them. And if it's true that the Holy One of God could welcome in these people, certainly we, as image bearers, can be willing to honor and see the value in anyone that would walk through the doors or anyone we'd come in contact with throughout our week. Amen? I think that sometimes we, we misunderstand honor and what it means. A lot of people think of honor as respect. Do you know there's a difference between respect and honor? I think that a lot of people say when you have to honor everybody, it's like, I don't honor them because I don't respect them. And actually the point is, is not respect is something that you earn. Honor is something that is given. It's given because of your inherent nature as made in the image of God. As someone, though, matter how marred and how messed up, is still someone that God loves and wants to redeem and wants to bring back. Everyone is the one, the, 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 the son that ran off, right? Took all the money, spent it all, and came back with his tail between his legs. So to dishonor somebody is to treat someone as ordinary. There's nothing special about you, no reason to treasure you. Dishonor treats people as common. It tears down, it belittles, it criticizes, it condemns, it devalues, it assumes the worst. Whereas honor esteems and cherishes and builds up and encourages and believes the best in. It's to hold somebody as precious, as weighty, as valuable, as someone that matters to God. One of the ways I think that we can grow in honoring people is to not be in a perpetual mission looking to be offended by everybody. 
Because if you're looking to get offended, it's pretty easy to get offended. (laughs) And I'm not saying don't get offended when you should be offended. I'm just saying everybody's desire seems like it's how quickly and how fast can I get offended. People make mistakes, especially those in power and those people in power and those that make mistakes need to be held accountable and to a high standard. I completely agree with that. But we have to be real careful that we aren't condemning those that God wants to forgive. Honor requires us to see below the surface, beneath the racism or abuse or arrogance or untruth, to see a person that God loves and longs to redeem. You don't have to necessarily like the person or respect the person or befriend the person, but how do you reflect the beauty of the goodness of God as his image bearer to that person in the world? I remember a few years ago, um, I'm going to close with this. Uh, There was a guy that came to our church, this is probably five or six years ago. And I'd only seen him a couple times. And he came into the church and he shared with me that he had recently lost his wife and his kids because he had abused them. And I remember in that moment, like, you know, just like feeling so much anger, and probably rightly so. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't know what to say to this guy. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I just wish this guy would leave. Because what what are the chances he's going to try to harm somebody else? And I just remember thinking to myself, how much better I am than this person. And how I didn't want this person to be part of this community because it was going to be hard. (laughs) And he said something that didn't really change my opinion at the time, but I think is, is true. He said, I guess to abuse people, abuse other people. That's something that he said. And I started thinking to myself, this guy's done some horrible things in his life. And the chances are, he's going to do more horrible things in his life. And chances are that in the midst of those things, he confessed that to me that morning, knowing that I was the pastor. And can you imagine how scary that must have been for him to do that? He knew what he had done was wrong. Imagine how scary it would be to show up at a church where you know that the thing that you do is pretty much the worst thing that you can do. And I started thinking to myself, is it possible, is it even possible for this guy to receive the love and the mercy of God? (laughs) And I thought, this is the last place on earth, right? Not just our church, but the church where somebody that has committed some heinous crimes and done some horrible things, even he can receive the love and the mercy and the grace of God. In fact, as God's image bearer and somebody that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ from all of my sin and all of my shame and all the things that I've done, 
I am called to reflect the beauty and the goodness and the mercy of God and to believe that nobody is irredeemable than possible. No one's beyond the goodness of God. That doesn't mean that you don't put guardrails around what that person could do in your community, right? Or who that person could you know, befriend. But could even a person like that, that so longed for God's forgiveness and God's mercy, receive it in our community? I wasn't sure that morning. Um, but I remember during worship that morning that God's just convicting me that this person, no matter how marred from sin, is an image bearer that has a measurable value and worth to God. And if he was the one that ran off, Jesus would leave the 99 to go find him. Amen?